Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We want our church to be a place where anyone from anywhere can come and find Jesus and be given the space to grow and mature in Him. Listen, grace gives space. Grace gives space. When you understand God's grace, you understand there's a lot of space here. God gives people space. That's not an excuse for sin. It's just the reality. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 10, verses 24 through 34, in a message titled, What God Has Cleansed, Do Not Call Unclean. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We have, I believe, misunderstood certain words, and we've misunderstood certain Bible text. So let's talk about words for a moment. I want to talk about this word, a loaded word, abomination. Man, when you hear about abomination, don't you just like, wow, that's an abomination. You know, that's bad. That's like really bad, you know, an abomination is really bad. And I have heard this over and over and over again, and I still hear it. But you know, homosexuality is an abomination before God. Another way to translate that word, the NIV translates it detestable. That's a strong word too. So man, when you think of, well, this is an abomination, this is detestable, the idea that we are either embracing or communicating when we use that term The idea is that this is like the worst of the worst of the sins. But here's the problem. That's not really an accurate understanding of the word abomination. And the best way to understand abomination, I think, in its broadest and and most accurate sense is found. There there are many other places that we could look at it. But I'm just going to look for just a second with us at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. And this is what it says. These six things the Lord detest. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So Proverbs is going to tell us right here seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. So here we go. The first one is a proud look. What? I mean, I kind of look proud all the time. You mean, what, is that, 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 that's an abomination? Yes, a proud look is an abomination. Secondly, a lying tongue. Well, a, a lying tongue? Whoa, wait a minute, that, that, that can't be an abomination. We, we all lie all the time, right? Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who causes division among brothers. These things are an abomination. But you see, here's my point. We don't walk around going, look at that proud guy. He is an abomination before God. Or, you know, that woman, man, she lies. She is an abomination. We don't do that, do we? We reserve that word. So we we completely misunderstood the word. And we reserved it for that one sin that we think that this is the worst because, after all, God said it's an abomination. So, you see, that's a misunderstanding of the word. You know what? It's obvious that 
<laughs> that all sins are an abomination to God. There's not one sin that he says, these are bad, but man, this one is an abomination. There, there, there is no such thing. So, that, so we've erred in misunderstanding that word. But secondly, I think we've also erred in misunderstanding uh, biblical text. And I want to point us to Romans chapter 1. Now, anybody who knows their Bible knows in Romans chapter 1, Paul there makes reference to those involved in homosexual activity. And what Paul says there is this. He says that God gave them over to a debased or a reprobate mind. So here's the problem. What we have done with that is kind of the same thing we've done with the word abomination. Because it says that God gave them over or God gave them up to a reprobate mind, we've interpreted that to mean, yeah, see, it's, it's over for them. They're beyond help. They can't be saved. God gave them up, meaning God's finished with them. Or that, uh, you know, they're, they're reprobate. Again, that's another strong word. You reprobate? That means like you're, you're beyond salvation. But listen, Paul absolutely could not have meant that for a number of reasons, one of them being the context of what he's saying, which I'll explain in a minute. But he couldn't have meant that because when he writes to the Corinthians, he says this. He goes through the list of a variety of different sinful lifestyles, and he includes homosexuality in it. And, and then he says to them, he's writing to the church, he says, you know, all of these things, he says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you see, Paul recognizes among the, the Christian congregations that there were people that came out of that lifestyle. So he certainly did not think that that group of people was beyond salvation. He did not think that God had given up on them. And as a matter of fact, if we interpret Romans 1 rightly, what we will understand is that Paul isn't really even addressing the issue of individual sin. He's not addressing the issue of individual sin. If you just follow through the remainder of the chapter, it becomes clear. He's addressing really cultures or civilizations that reject God, the creator. And he says, these are the consequences. This is where things will go as a judgment by God for those who reject God. But he's not really talking specifically to or addressing specifically the individual sin. So if we, if we properly understand words, and if we properly interpret the biblical text, we will not make the mistake of thinking that there is a sin or sins that are in a special category that set people in the worst light or, or even worse than that, set them in a position of they are unsavable or unredeemable. There's no such thing anywhere in scripture. So we have to correct our misunderstanding on that. Now, I'm gonna, I wanna bring this up as well. The Bible does tell us that homosexual activity and desire is, it's contrary to nature. It's not, it's not in accordance with God's natural order. It's not the, it's not the only sin in the Bible that, that is referred to in that way, but it, but it does tell us that, and, and that's a reality. 
And listen, because of that, sometimes we have reactions that are, I think, ungodly, unchristlike, and just unallowed by the Lord. We, we, we can't react this way. And, and let me just give you an example. So what happens sometimes is because that we have just a sort of some, uh, str- people have a strong natural aversion to it, we, we look at that and we say, oh, that's disgusting. That's just reprehensible. But you see, when you say that about a person, whether you meant it or not, they feel like you're saying to them, you are disgusting. Which underneath that is a hidden message like, I am better than you because I'm not disgusting like that. I don't have those vile, perverse desires like you do. So somehow you are putting them in a position of feeling like they are, again, they're in that place where, well, you know, I'm, I'm disgusting. And listen, if you feel that way, okay, but if you say that, that's a problem. And, and, and even if you feel that way, that's a problem too. And, and God's going to help you work through that, just like he did Peter. He's going to work you through a process to show you. What's he going to show you? He's going to show you that, you know what, you're a sinner too. And you're filthy too. And you're vile. And you're perverted. But, I'm speaking for God, I have never called you disgusting. See, God doesn't say that to us, does he? God has never said to me, Brian, you are just a disgusting sinner. You are just filthy and vile. God's never said that to me. We have no right to ever say that to anybody. We have no right. Because, listen, we're, if we're going to point the finger, look, we got, we got, you know, three fingers pointing back at ourselves. You know, you see, the thing is, again, I might not have that particular issue as a sin in my life, but I've got my own issues, my own sins. And if I fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, but that's a worse sin, and then I just have a totally distorted view on what the Bible teaches about a lot of things. So, you know, how do we move forward with this? And, and you know, listen, I want to go back to the story that I told a little bit earlier about uh, the young man who, who's a friend. I know him. And, and I just said, look, I, I'm sorry that you feel this way. And, you know, he was trying to explain to me the, the awkwardness of... And, and, you know, the problem of feeling like you can't really be honest, because if you're honest with people, then you're going to be rejected. And, and I just said to him, listen, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. We, we are going to do better. We're going we're gonna to work on this. Let's work on this together. Let, let's learn how to you know, work with and, and help each other. And, and not just let this be a moment where, you know, f- forget it. We, this is just the way it is. No, we, we can't allow that to happen. We can't afford to allow that to happen today. Because listen, this is the world that we live in. You know, I was with a friend some years ago in New York City. We were walking around and he said something that was simple but profound. And, you know, New York City, you can imagine, you know, we're just looking at all the craziness of everything. And he says, you know, this is not the world that we hope for but it's the world we got. And I said, you know, amen. That's it. This is not the world I envisioned. It's not the world I wanted my grandkids to grow up in, but it is the world that we've got. And the only hope for the world that we've got is the gospel. That's the only hope. So if people of whatever stripe or sin 
feel like they are not welcome to those places where the gospel is going to be heard or whatever, then that's a massive problem. So, so we can't let that happen. We, we've got to work together. So, so what do we do? Well, we, this is where we start. We, we start. we start by remembering we are all sinners saved by grace, and we are all in a process of sanctification. We're all in a process of sanctification. You know, when I was a young pastor, I've been a pastor almost 40 years now. When I was a young pastor, I used to think sanctification should go much quicker. With everybody else, of course. I never really even thought to apply it to myself. But, you know, for everybody else, it's like, what are you doing? Come on, get with the program, you know? Are you even saved? You know, slap them in the back of the head kind of a thing. Uh, but you know what I've learned in 40 years almost of pastoring? I've learned that there is a process that, that God's working out in people's lives. And it's, it's a lot more complicated and longer than I ever thought it was going to be. You know, in some people you see like... You know, they, they just seem to have this radical conversion experience where, man, they just get, you know, freed from something and they never go back and all of that. And that is fantastic. But, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody. That's the reality. It doesn't happen that way for everybody. And the other thing that we often overlook is they got delivered from that one thing that was so glaring and so obvious. But, man, there's a ton of other things that they still got real issues with. And God, like we're seeing, you know, patiently, graciously works us through these things. So since that's the way God works, we have to be that way toward one another. And we all need one another's love and support and encouragement and prayer. And we all need to know, listen, we all need to know that rather than being judged and cast aside, we will be embraced and carried along to maturity in Christ. That's what we all need to know. Everybody who walks through that door, whatever they're struggling with, they need to know that, you know, they're entering into a process and, and we're going to help them through that process. We are going to help them. I'm going to help them. You're going to help them. We're going to help each other as God's people work through this, this sanctification process so that we can all come into the maturity that Christ is calling us to. But again, there are things that we need to know that I think sometimes we're unaware of. Here's one. We need to know that God's answer to homosexuality is not heterosexuality. This is a mistake that we often make. And this is part of the, the uncomfortableness that this young person was telling me about. Because, you know, when a person has found out about, you know, their, their previous life and their background, the, the immediate uh, response is, oh, oh don't, don't worry, we're going to find you a girl. You know, there's a good girl out there. You're going to get married. And, and this is very common. But listen, the truth of the matter is this. Heterosexuality is not the answer to homosexuality. You know what the answer is? Holy sexuality. And Christopher Yuan has sort of coined that frame. Christopher Yuan, who came out of the gay world, a, a gay activist who is now a Bible professor at Moody Bible Institute. But... You know, as a, as a man in his 40s who is not married, but his emphasis is on, you know, the Bible calls us to a holy sexuality because you can be heterosexual and be just as filthy, just as wicked, just as sinful, right? I mean, come on. That's just, you know, that's not the answer. The answer is holy sexuality. 
So here's what we need to understand. That some people will come out of the gay life and go into a heterosexual marital relationship and they will live out their lives uh, in Christ in that context and that's great, that's wonderful. But that's not the experience of everyone. Some people are going to live the rest of their lives with those same-sex attractions. They're going to live the rest of their lives with that struggle being there but they are going to commit themselves to living holy. They're going to commit themselves to living for Jesus and understand that that means celibacy. That means that I will not engage in any sexual activity. They're, they're going to understand that and they're going to commit themselves to that. And we need to applaud that and encourage that and, and support them in that. And, and this is something that we have to think about. You know, I read a lot. I you know, listen to things and all. And it's kind of interesting that this all came up this week because I've been, I've been reading about kind of the, I don't know, kind of, kind of the frustration among single people in the church. And one of the frustrations that single people express in the church is that they often feel like they're sort of being looked at as sort of second-class citizens because they feel like in some ways... And there's some research that is kind of attached to this, that in some ways the church is so uh, sort of glorified marriage that you, you, it's almost just without saying it, the impression that's given is like, this is God's perfect plan. This is God's ideal. And if somehow, you know, you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 and you're not married, something's wrong. So they feel as, as, as single people that this is a problem. And then, of course, so you've got, you've got that, just the general group of single people. Then you have the subgroup of single people who struggle with same-sex uh, issues. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, of course, the Bible applauds singleness. Jesus was single. We know that. He could not have been married. It would, he just couldn't have done it because of his mission. But Paul was single. And we sometimes forget that. It was a single guy who wrote, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husbands. And Paul, Paul encouraged singleness. Of course, he supported marriage. He understood that, yes, God created marriage as well, but not to the exclusion of singleness. Paul said, hey, I'm single, and guess what? I'm, I'm much freer to serve the Lord. I don't have the distractions that the married people have. But in the end, he said, look, if you're married or single, either one, just serve the Lord. It doesn't matter. But sometimes what happens to us is we, we just have an insensitivity. And it, whether we're intending to do it or not, we, people kind of feel like, well, you know, I'm just that sort of the outcast because I'm, I'm single or, you know, because I'm not maybe, maybe coming out of a gay uh, life experience. I'm not really looking for an opposite sex partner to get married to. I'm just going to commit myself to serving the Lord like this. And, and you know, that, that can be misunderstood and there could just be unnecessary issues that develop there. So what I'm saying is that we all need to grow in, in areas. And we want, and I'm speaking for all of us as the pastor of this church, we want our church to be a place where anyone from anywhere can come and find Jesus and be given the space to grow and mature in him. Listen, grace gives space. Grace gives space. 
When you understand God's grace, you understand there's a lot of space here. God gives people space. And that's not an excuse for sin. It's just the reality that we, we all sin. We stumble. We, we're, we're all in a process. We're all growing. We're all having things change in our life. And going back to where we started, Peter, you know, he's the guy. It's like, man, this is the guy. He's the, one, he's the chief apostle. He's the, but Peter's got issues. And God didn't just cut him off, say, hey, no, sorry, you got those issues. No, God gave, because of grace, God gave him space to grow. And we need to do that for one another. And I'll say this in closing, final thought here. There's, there's two different people in this room today. Two different categories, if you will. There are some who need the kind of awakening that Peter had in the house of Cornelius. There are some who need that revelation that, man, I've got, I've got deeply ingrained issues, prejudices that, that God, I, Lord, you got to get this stuff out of me. I got to repent of this. That's some people. And, and in that group too, there's some people who you, you've already kind of learned that lesson, but you've drifted back. And so Paul's coming along and saying, I'm going to rebuke you to your face. You need to, you need to deal with that. So that's one group. But then there's another group. And the other group is the group that has been offended, if you will, or has been made to feel that, whether, whether perceived or real, you, you've been made to feel like you're, you're unwelcome or whatever. And, and listen, for you, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. You've got to let that go. You can't allow that kind of resentment to, to be there because that's the soil that the devil plants his stake in, in unforgiveness and resentment. And he plants his stake in that. And then, you know, before too long, he's got you right back where he wants you. And so you, you have to forgive. And... We, you know, we, we have to do that. We have to, and not just with this particular topic, you know, a lot of people carry around unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, because they've, they've been offended and I'm not going to go to the church anymore because, you know, they don't understand me and they're not sensitive to me and all of that. And, and man, that is the enemy's, well, he loves that and he will, he will feed that. He will fuel that. He wants you to get caught up in that mindset that we were talking about earlier, just that judgmental, harsh, you know, you hypocrites, you racists, you bigots, you whatever, you know, that's, that's the voice of the devil in the culture. And we have to refuse that. And we have to have grace for each other and recognize, man, we're all on a journey. We're, we're, all, we're, we're all in a process. And God's grace gives us all space. And so God help us to give, through grace, space to one another. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. So one of my favorite books over the past couple years was a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Fantastic book. Well, she has made 
sort of a children's version of the book. It's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. She did such an amazing job with the Confronting Christianity book. It was actually the book of the year. I know that this one is excellent as well. So I want to encourage you, especially if you have teenage children, to pick it up for them, read it along with them. If you are a school teacher, you interact with young people and you want to know how to help them, this will be a tremendous resource. So 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, my recommendation for this month. Again, this month's resource is a book titled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can order the book 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin to help you equip the next generation to wrestle with the challenges raised against Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.